The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com/slash The Bill Press Show. And this is the Bill Press Show. I am not Bill Press. I am Cameron Joseph from the New York Daily News, and I will be talking all about Trump's first hundred days. That happens to cover kind of a lot right now. But first, this. Is the full court press. Just a couple of other stories making news here on a Friday, April 28th, all day long. Now, we have been following the case of Dr. David Dow, the passenger who was recorded being dragged off of a United flight in Chicago. Uh, we know that he suffered injuries as he was being dragged off. We knew that a lawsuit was coming. Well, we got word yesterday that United has reached a settlement with the airline, his attorney said in a press release. We do not know how much money Dr. David Dow made off of this. We don't know how much money United paid him, but they said that the settlement is, quote, amicable and praised United CEO Oscar Munoz for his handling of the situation. I Again, I have no details on how much money, but I... My guess is it wasn't awarded in miles. It was a Mm -hmm. lot of money. You could could bank on that one. They paid him a lot of money for that one, I would imagine. Uh, So that that is the end of the story with Dr. David Dow. Now, there are still a lot of other problems that United has. And as we talked yesterday, the uh, CEO, uh, Oscar Munoz, said that they are going to up the amount of money that they'll pay people to give up their seat. And they are going to... uh, slow down, but not stop altogether. They're going to slow down the practice of overbooking their flights. So that's uh, the, on to the next chapter with United, I guess. <laughs> More problems at Fox News. We know that Bill O'Reilly uh, is no longer with us at Fox News. He's doing his own thing now, and I'm sure he'll be fine. But Fox News host Jesse Waters, he was announced that he was going to have a uh, permanent spot there in the primetime li- prime time lineup. And, well, he's already taking a vacation. (laughs) And this comes just after he appeared to make a joke about Ivanka Trump giving oral sex to a microphone. This just seems to be what he said. She was holding the microphone, and he very crudely sort of said, uh, I really liked how she was speaking into that microphone, sort of mimicking a hand gesture that looked like he was giving. Yeah, it sounds like he's the one who blew it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he's taking a vacation. Here, you get, you after this... ch- here you have like Bill O'Reilly's protege. This is a man who was nurtured and walked through. He gets a shot because his mentor is finally forced out uh, with a rather cushy uh, golden parachute, it sounds like. And somehow he's out too. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm guessing he's back, but it, it's amazing. I don't know if they're going to be able to find somebody to fill 
Is Jesse Waters really worth it to Fox News? No, you know he's what not. I mean? You got to be a little more careful when you don't have billions of viewers. That's I mean, the thing. I mean, Bill O'Reilly, they gambled and they paid off all these sexual assault claims because he delivered on ratings, as grotesque as that might be. Yeah. That's what Fox News did. They're going to go to the mat for Jesse Waters? Jesse Waters is such a garbage human being. <laughs> if he goes down in flames, no one will be happier than me. I, I despise that guy. I, I despise that guy. There are a lot of people who I don't think would be yeah. too heartbroken about yeah. it. And uh, finally today, I don't I don't eat at McDonald's because I don't think it tastes good, but when I went as a kid, I would always get the high C orange. Jamie, you were you one know? of those kids, weren't you? I was one of those kids. No, I, I, I stay away from the high C. What do you mean you stay away from the high C? It's the, it was the best drink they had. No. no. Uh, high C orange odes. Well, it's like... You, you weren't one of those kids who like took the cup and put in like a little bit of every single flavor. I did flavor. do that okay. too. I did do that too. I, I say, absolutely say, did. Say that. like a little splash of high C orange. Yeah, and, like, yeah. The, the but I'd, n- go the full, nine... I'd also go full high C orange. Well, they are phasing it out. No more. You're not going to be able to get high C orange at McDonald's anymore. Beginning May first, they are going to be introducing a new flavor called Sprite Tropic Berry. Ugh. It's going to be exclusive to McDonald's location. That's disgusting. Sounds terrible. Trump's America. Welcome to Trump's America. So, R.I.P. High Seal. On your radio, on TV. And online, this is the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph, Washington Bureau Chief of the New York Daily News, guest hosting today. Got a pretty uh, busy full show. It's amazing how much news can be made with President Trump. I'm going to have Elise Foley in in a little bit, talking immigration. Got Jordan Cheriton from uh, TYT, the Young Turks, in a bit, talking 100 Days. And Jen Habercorn talking about the zombie healthcare bill that won't ever quite die. But right now we're going to talk a little bit about Mr. Flynn. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of interesting where things are going. Every time people seem to start forgetting about uh, the former most powerful national security figure in the Trump administration uh, who had his hands on every single bit of intelligence, all of our state secrets, and every bit of info we had about other countries. Uh, who who was kind of ignominiously forced out, uh, it seems to come back. And yesterday we found out some pretty interesting things that the Pentagon expressly told him he probably shouldn't be headed to uh, Russia to take state to take state money. Uh, you know, he famously gave the speech to Russia Today RT, uh, which is a state propaganda outlet. Met with uh, Putin while he was over there uh, at that dinner and. Uh, it turns out that uh, he was told that type of thing was kind of a bad idea. And uh, Congressman Cummings, who's the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, revealed this yesterday. I want to listen a little bit to what he had to say on that. This letter explicitly warned General Flynn as he entered retirement that the Constitution prohibited him from accepting any foreign government payments without advance permission. Now, that's problematic, and that's a good reason that uh, the uh, Defense Department is officially opening an investigation into him, which we also found out yesterday. Uh, It's also kind of interesting to see 
all of a sudden, you know, the Trump administration, every time somebody gets the Russia thing going, starts to distance themselves with them. You saw it with Carter Page, who honestly, I don't know if he was actually that senior or important a guy. Uh, he's the one with the most obvious Russia connections, uh, but maybe not quite as important in Trump land as some people on the, you know, the more conspiratorial end want to claim. Uh, but, you know, there was a campaign chairman who was also linked to some of the Russian connections. Uh, that kind of matters. But Flynn is the big one. And people seem to forget exactly how powerful he was in Trump world and how influential he was. I mean, he, he was rumored to be on the VP list at one point. He was a very close advisor. Forget uh, yeah, pe- people VP forget stuff. about this. I mean, he, the dude was was a powerhouse. I mean, he was probably one of the three or four people most trusted by president now President Trump during the campaign. And yesterday, all of a sudden, the White House started distancing themselves from him. And I thought this was pretty telling. It's us listen to uh, what Sean Spicer had to say about uh, what exact background uh, briefing that they did and what vetting they did of Mr. Flynn. All of that clearance was was made by the Obama during the Obama administration, uh, and apparently with knowledge of the trip that he took. Jeez, uh, so are you kidding me? Yeah, all of a sudden they're they're trying to blame Obama, um, and I, I'm just going to read. Yeah, I ran into Adam Schiff in the hallway, uh, the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee, which is one of the committees uh, trying to do a real investigation, or at least it looks like now they're trying to do a real investigation after a new chairman came in on the GOP side. Uh, and asked him, okay, is that actually how the vetting works? And his response is, no, that's not at all how that works. I'd surprise he'd say such a thing. They're going to have to do better than that. Basically, that isn't accurate. Basically, A, Flynn left, he, he was a former general, decorated general, uh, left the Obama administration under a cloud in 2014. 2016, I think what Spicer must be referring to is uh, you had to get a bit of a background check to get the classified briefings that all of the presidential candidates get. Uh, but that's a different level of of clearance than the top secret that he had before. Uh, and that doesn't matter because at least under every recent administration before Trump, you still had to go through a very serious vetting process, going through your background check, going through an FBI background check, filling out all these paperwork to show what your possible conflicts of interest would be. The administration would go through every public document to make sure that there weren't any problems. They would do extensive interviews. I was told by somebody who did vetting in the Obama administration yesterday that they would average uh, about 50 to 60 interviews per person, and that's for everybody. For somebody with this type of high position, uh, it would be more extensive, more probing. Uh, and so basically they're saying, well, yeah, Obama did it, so we didn't really need to worry about it. Why would we need to worry about it? Um, and compared it to people like me getting into the White House. And I you know, want, want to just play this because people were, were really kind of laughing about <laughs> what Sean Spicer had to say to this. But, you know, it, it's, it, it's kind of it's funny, but it's also kind of serious. When you applied to come here to this briefing room, as a member of the press, you applied and you fill out certain forms with the Secret Service to have your background run. When I came in here on January 20th, the people that had been cleared the day before were cleared on the 20th, the 21st, and et cetera. We didn't rerun your background. We trust that when you were cleared the first time, whether if you were cleared on you know, December 15th or January 20th, that you were still, that your background check is still cleared. So A, 
they did rerun our backgrounds. Mm-hmm. People are having to go through a a getting a new hard pass, and I'm and some I'm somebody who hasn't uh, covered the White House every day until recently. Uh, so I'm going through my first application, which is a more probing process, but they still go through that. And that is just to physically walk onto the White House grounds to be in the briefing room. It's not exactly to have all of the state secrets at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. And and I talked to uh, Patrick Moore, whose uh, job it was in the Obama administration, to vet prospective nominees. And he called it laughable. He said... <laughs> To compare the level of vetting given to White House journalists with the level of vetting that should be associated with an individual handling the most sensitive material the United States government has within its possession is laughable. Um. <laughs> yeah, so that's problematic. And I, and I think it's interesting, you know, Michael Flynn was fired. Yeah. He, By the way, Obama fired him, too. I mean, for, for all this talk about... Yeah, well, and, and it wasn't even really Obama who fired him. It was the generals right. who asked for him to be, you know, it was, this wasn't some like, oh, he was a right winger and so Obama forced him out, which is kind of the tale he likes to tell. Right, this was, total garbage. He, he was causing problems. He he was ignoring orders. He was kind of going rogue. It's, it's hard to do that in the military. And the other generals weren't thrilled with it. And I think that it's interesting, and, and uh, Congressman Cummings raised this, uh, why is the White House still defending him? They fired the guy. I honestly do not understand why the White House is covering up for Michael Flynn. I don't get it. After the president fired him for lying. I, I get it. I, I know I know what, what, what that's all about is, like, everybody said, critics of Trump said, okay, look, Michael Flynn is not some admirable guy. He is uh, very problematic on a lot of different issues, Russia being one of them, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. fact that he wants to eradicate Muslims in general is not a good look for someone that was going to be in that position that he was in. But the Russia thing is something that came up, and everybody said, this is the bad. This is a bad guy. You shouldn't be hiring Michael Flynn. He should at least be put up for scrutiny to, uh, to, 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 to get confirmed, right? But this is when he was appointed, it was not something that you had to go through and get confirmed for. And so now here we are, and Trump has egg on his face. And the administration has egg on his face again. And we know the one thing he's not going to do is walk something back or say, yeah. like, oh, yeah, you know what? I screwed up, and I maybe should have listened to other people. Right, That's they doubled never down. in a million years can yeah. happen. So he screwed up. He hired Michael Flynn. He, 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 he went to battle for Michael Flynn. Ultimately, he probably had – it was a bigger fight than he was ready to handle. Yeah. But he was wrong. Yeah. And hiring Michael Flynn was wrong. It was a bad idea and it was wrong. Yeah, and I and I got to say with everything else that's going on in the world right now, can you imagine if Michael Flynn was still the national security advisor as opposed to HR McMaster who is an incredibly respected, reasonable, intelligent man who I you know, I, I a lot of Democrats sure. I talk to, you know, people uh, from all stripes politically, you know, like the guy, even if they don't like a single other thing about Trump. Um, he's the one who has the president's ear on national security matters right now. We see Steve Bannon off the National Security Council. We yeah. see the people who matter with significantly more access to it. Uh, the actual generals are actually going, you know, there for every major meeting now. Um, combining Mr. Flynn in power with, I don't know, North Korea, <laughs> I think we'd be dealing with a slightly different situation. And 
uh, you know, it's it's important to have some you know real serious military people in power, on uh, you know advising the president on this for any president because this is you know complicated, sensitive, dangerous situation. Uh, but I yeah I think it's pretty interesting with with this president in particular about how he's talking about North Korea and the type of saber rattling they're doing. And he, he had an interesting comment to Reuters yesterday, uh, last night as he was talking about this. And I think it is pretty fascinating uh, to look at uh, a man who is getting a little more serious about uh, possible military intervention. And, you know, the the, the senators I talked to coming out of that classified briefing uh, were not as alarmed about this is going to be an imminent military strike. But uh, what Trump said yesterday is we could have a major conflict with North Korea. And I think that is a little... Interesting, uh, given <laughs> it is interesting uh, where we are, and uh, you know this is something that that is an incredibly complex situation that needs to be handled very delicately, and I uh, I think it it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out, and I don't think anyone has a clear idea about where this is going. I, I want to ask you because you just you just sort of hit on it a little bit the the, the big field trip, the big bus tour. Yeah, that the Senate took to go and get briefed on North Korea. Uh, you mentioned you talked to some people after that. Um, it didn't seem like it did much of anything, right? Like even no. Cor- Corker kind of said, like, I don't know that I would have had a brief that briefing. Right. And it, it's definitely out of character for Trump to sort of bring everybody in and sort of have a big kumbaya, like, sh- uh, show everybody what he's doing? Like, I don't think it was a kumbaya I, I should, I think I it was kumbaya. a look-at-me-I'm-the-president moment. I I, think that, it was that's, a, that's what I'm getting bring, bring them to, you know, they, they could have more easily, not just as easily, more easily done this at the Senate, right. where, where there, there are rooms specifically designed for classified briefings. And so they, they brought them in. It sounds like they didn't have a ton to say. Uh, it, it was interesting. I was talking, That's what I'm getting yeah. at. It doesn't sound like they have much um, to say. And it's not in Trump's character to like tell everybody what his plan is or what he's working on, assuming that there even is right. a plan. But they, they were trying to brief the Democrats and Republicans, the senators who are going to matter on this. Uh, they didn't seem to feel like they were, you know, when we were pushing them on like, you know, use of military thor- force, like Congress's role in this. What, and like none of them really, you know they couldn't talk about exactly what was in the meeting but they none of them seemed like they were like yeah. worried about having to actually have that debate that negotiation because they actually needed to start worrying about dropping the big one uh or any uh you know preliminary military strikes here but uh, I did not want to be part of a uh road show for the White House yeah i mean that, that was kind of the, the sense of, of a lot of democrats coming out of there uh, Tammy Duckworth congress or senator rather from Illinois uh, talked about this and basically said, you know, she couldn't, she could have gotten all of this out of the papers. Like she could have read the New York Times and had as much information as she got out of this. So um, that is interesting. Uh, they, you know, made a show of, of telling these senators what they're going to do, and a lot of people were going into that thinking, okay, this means they're briefing them on action they're going to take, and it wasn't that. Uh, but you know they they they've finally now gotten a crew you know a big uh big boat into the area that uh, turns out it, it was in Indonesia when they said that they were sending the uh, aircraft carrier to North Korea so uh it took a minute to turn that aircraft carrier around and get it over there but it's there now they're moving in missile defense systems 
Uh, and, you know, they're working multilaterally and trying to pressure uh, China to pressure North Korea uh, to the, you know, their, their biggest trading partner to cut them off. Um, at the same time, South Korea is clearly the one with the most at risk here. They're the ones that may not be here if this goes nuclear. Right. And so here we are saying how close they were going to work with them. And then yesterday, President Trump starts blasting away at the Korean free trade agreement we have. And whether or not you think this is a good trade agreement, and I think that that's open to interpretation, sure. open to debate, uh, pretty notable that we are actually you know, creating a major diplomatic rift with the country that we are theoretically working the most closely with on this at a time where war is maybe not a, is certainly not a likelihood, but it is you know a possibility. Oh, I'd say it's a likelihood. I'd say it's a. I'd say that war is an absolute likelihood. I think that Trump is looking for. I mean, he sort of showed his hand that he was looking for a reason to drop a bomb on North Korea. I, I think that it's inevitable. Might be a little strong. Is a but chance that we could end up having a major, major conflict with North Korea. How, how North? Absolutely. How North Korea responds, I don't know, but I think that we will absolutely, eventually bomb North Korea. I think it's a real possibility. I, I'm, I'm not there with you. That's I, fine. I, I, I yeah, don't that's think fine. that the, it is a guarantee. Um, My crystal balls are very, very, very accurate. They're never wrong. This is a great time to be alive, ladies and gentlemen. There he is. This is an amazing time to be alive. What a time. (laughs) What a time. Uh, Yeah, so (laughs) there's that. Uh, And, and, you know, it's it's funny. I talk talk to a lot of people who are like, okay, well, look, who who are, you know, people on the left who are really worried about the Trump administration coming in. And 100 days in or 99 days in, are not quite as alarmed about you know the totalitarian state and, and the overthrow of democracy and all that. Um, nuclear war is something you don't really need a lot of help from Congress on or can be checked by the courts on. And so this is something that, that is interesting. President Trump has shown from the start that he tends to repeat whatever has been last told him. Mm. He's not somebody who consistently sticks with the message. This is one of those things when you're talking about international diplomacy – it gets pretty sticky when you're having people reading tea leaves on what you say in every conversation, every public utterance. And I think he's gotten – I'm going to give him credit. I think he's gotten better in terms of being a little on message. But, you know, we could have a major conflict with North Korea and then in the same interview, the same interview criticizing South Korea yeah, is not the type of discipline that uh, – makes for a stable global environment. And so I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out. And, you know, there is a lot of political gain from foreign involvement, at least early on. I mean, you saw uh, you know, President Trump is the second Republican president in a row to come in, uh, promising not to get involved in foreign entanglements, running on a campaign of non-interventionism, running on an America kind of, um, for be- lack of a better term, America first campaign. Uh, obviously, President George W. Bush had a major, major crisis that sure. happened with 9-11 that you can debate whether, you know, it was forced on him, whether he handled it or not. Lots of people sure, have lots fair. of strong opinions about it, but it became an international 
presidency. It became a foreign policy and war presidency uh, that I think he kind of was dragged backwards into. And I honestly think that if 9-11 had never happened, I think a lot he would have been remembered a lot better. Uh, His instinct on a lot of stuff domestically, I mean, you look at he started off with No Child Left Behind. Uh, He wasn't crazy about campaign finance reform, but he didn't veto it. He worked with McCain and Feingold to get to a bill where, you know, he wouldn't veto it. Um, He had a different mindset about how he was going to be president than ended up being. Uh, and I think kind of deferred a little too much to his advisors on Iraq and, and trusting that they knew better than him early on in the presidency. And I think once Condi Rice came in, it got a little better uh, in the second term, and he stopped listening to Cheney quite as much. But that was, you know, I, I think people like to laugh about how dumb W was. and he, he was a smart dude and knew what he was doing and maybe didn't know as much about foreign policy as he needed to at the moment uh, when things went sideways. Uh, President Trump, I don't feel like has the nearly the depth or base of knowledge or the ability to pick up on information and get his head around major complex situations. Uh, I, I forget who wrote it. I, I think it might have been Politico had a piece about how uh, his advisors were talking about rather than coming in, you know, how how to handle the president, and rather than coming in with three or four policy options and walking through the pluses and minuses of each, and then letting Trump pick. They've realized that that just basically confuses him and and frustrates him. And so they what they've done is they pick the one they want. They walk in, they walk him through it, and they give the pluses and minuses of that. And then he usually signs off on whatever they're recommending. And so, you know, for, for a man who likes to be perceived a, a, as the decider no. for a, a W term, um, it, he, he's a guy who listens to his advisors. So I think that the, the Flynn for McMaster trade – uh, was crucial and important and can't be overlooked about given the situation we are in with North Korea right now and, you know, maybe mention Syria, maybe mention Iran, who we're ta- now still talking about pulling out of the nuclear deal, even though we're saying, oh, actually, they're they're abiding by the nuclear deal. Uh, those things matter. And I think that having more cautious advisors around President Trump right now which is kind of where we wound up, at least on the foreign policy front, is actually important. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot going on here that, uh, not to say that, like, oh, this is complex, but, like, (laughs) there are a lot of world leaders and a lot of leaders here in this country who, like, they can see around corners, right? Like, they Mm -hmm. know what's coming. They can see what's coming. They can plan for it. They're ready for it. Trump can't do that. Trump sees exactly what is right in front of his face, and that's it. He doesn't see what's coming. He doesn't prepare for what's coming. And so, like, when he gives these interviews or he gives these statements, I think that they are way more dangerous than I think we are willing to discuss because, like, yes, it's a message to the American people, but it's a very clear message to everybody in the world. Yeah, Everybody's watching that. People yeah. are kind of freaked out right now, like it or not. Like, yeah. Whether you're a Trump supporter or not, like you can understand that like things are a little dicey right now. And so everybody's watching. Everybody's trying to figure out what the holy hell is going to happen next. And we got a guy who doesn't care what happens next. He just cares what's happening right now. Yeah. So He's... like this is kind of terrifying and, and frankly, amateur hour. Yeah, I, I mean, he's playing checkers when other people are playing Chinese checkers right now. <laughs> sure. Um, on, on some of these issues. And, you know, I, I think that 
part of what makes him such a good politician, and I think people underrate this, is how good he is at reacting quickly with the right soundbite for the right crowd. But he's really good at building his base. And when you start dealing, you know, the more complicated the situation, the harder this becomes, and the less about messaging and optics this becomes, and the more about real policy and real ramifications this gets into. And so the foreign policy stuff, I think, is is the area that uh, is going to be the most interesting and the most important to watch. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of things done domestically that a lot of people on the left aren't going to be thrilled about. Uh, but you're seeing Congress actually matters and Congress's dysfunction and the fact that they can't get on the same page on almost anything actually matters. And the fact that there are some adults in the room over there that are going to keep certain things from not happening. You see the courts stepping in when President Trump is is overstepped to say, okay, we can't do this, we can't do this. And those things will be litigated and that will go through the courts and we'll see how it plays out in the Supreme Court uh, with uh, some of his uh, moves on immigration and sanctuary cities and refugees. Um, foreign policy, you don't have that check. And that's where we're really going to see, the. I think, the rubber hit the road in terms of uh, what President Trump can do and what he learns and how quickly he learns about this. And so it's it's gonna it's gonna be a bumpy ride, I think, on, on some of these things. And I uh, gonna be fascinating to see how uh, the uh, Korean Peninsula uh, plays out and and how brightly it may glow. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, look, this is I've mentioned this before, but when a lot of Republicans came out and endorsed Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, right? Which this, which, this is why. This is why. This is the exact reason why, because we have a madman in North Korea, and we have a madman in the United States. And this is like that old saying, what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? We are about to find out. By the way, before we go to break, can we play this clip from the Reuters interview? Uh, Yeah. This is a clip, honestly, I've been waiting for as someone who opposes Donald Trump publicly, saying... Basically, he didn't realize the presidency would be this hard. I loved my previous life. I loved my previous life. I had so many things going. I, I, I actually, this is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. There it is. I, I have to say, he's getting a lot of grief for that this morning, and I, I don't think he's getting enough. <laughs> really, like I think people everywhere should be freaking out. That that was his mentality coming into the presidency. I mean, if you're a Republican and you wanted a change, I, I, I like I understand why people voted for Donald Trump, really and truly. Um, you wanted a change, you wanted someone to shake things up. But like, what is the myth of Donald Trump? He's this amazing, hardworking businessman that's going to fight like hell to get things done the right way. And he's out here saying he thought the presidency was going to be easier than it is. Like. You should be outraged if you voted for Donald Trump and he and he's out there saying that. Really. I thought it would be easier. I, I think that's a really like one of the dumbest things I've ever heard a politician say. And I think that's something that, frankly, every president has probably thought once they're actually president. It's not an easy job. Sure, sure. There's a difference fair. between thinking it and publicly announcing it during a major interview. And he's got this stream of consciousness style, which can be very entertaining and very illuminating. And I think this is one of those moments where you see – him realizing this is kind of complicated and 
the question is whether that uh, teaches him anything, whether that gives him a little bit of humbleness, or whether he has that thought and then he just gets frustrated and moves on and gets back on Twitter. And we've seen moments where it looks like he might be getting a little humbled, he might be learning a little bit, uh, and then we see the tweets flying. And as long as it's just tweets flying, I feel okay about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I guess that's about. I guess that's right. We we'll take right. a break. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back and talk to uh, Elise Foley. Why don't we do that? Happier topics. All right. Yeah. Please. No more war. <laughs> I thought it would be easier. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph of the New York Daily News sitting in today in Bill's very comfortable chair. And I got Elise Foley of the Huffington Post here talking about all things immigration. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start off with this uh, big executive order? Obviously, President Trump has been trying to do lots of big, exciting, major, impactful things. Uh, clearly, immigration was a big issue during the campaign. Uh, absent any actual legislative achievements, he's done a lot of executive orders. Uh, one of them was to create, or part of that executive order, was to create this new Victims of Immigration Crime Enforcement Office. And it's got its grand unveiling, it sounds like. You want to talk a little bit about what this actually is going to do? Sure. So they just launched it this week. And basically what it does is combines a bunch of stuff that ICE did already. So for victims of crime and also witnesses, you could already register with ICE and get updates on what was going on with the um, you know, perpetrator or alleged perpetrator um, in your case and get an update if they were getting deported or transferred somewhere else or released. Um, So that already existed, but now you can do it via text message. So, I mean, it's not nothing, um, but it is a lot of things that already existed. There's a new hotline, but the hotline already existed. Just previously was mostly used by people who were wanting to know, like, where's my husband? Things like that. Now they'll have a special number where they can call and um, find out if you're, a, you know, a victim can call it also. Which I mean, I assume that a victim could do that before. Um, maybe just not a lot of people did it. So I says that this is important because people um, don't necessarily know that those resources existed. But I think generally it fits into this broader theme by Trump and his administration of. Um, sending the message that immigrants are criminals. And I think notably, this includes legal immigrants. Um, Somebody could be a legal permanent resident and they could still be removable if they commit certain crimes. And those people you can get updates on as well. So this is not just about undocumented immigrants. This is about immigrants in general being scary and dangerous. Yeah. And basically, it's propaganda. I mean, it it sounds like this is not something that they're doing new things. It sounds like they're putting, P, you know, essentially a big public service announcement, PSA, about, hey, these are all available and they're centralizing this. 
It, 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 this goes to two things that I think I've seen a lot in a lot of different parts of the Trump administration, which is a ton of noise, a ton of movement without anything actually changing in terms of what the government is doing, in terms of real organization, real change, um, but also the prizing rhetoric over action. Um, and it, it seems to me like, like this is essentially what they're doing. I also think it's pretty interesting. You know, DHS Secretary Kelly was one of the few people that Democrats were not that freaked out about. They, you know, obviously were worried about what Trump was doing on immigration, but they felt pretty comfortable with him. They thought right. he might be a check on Trump. And I was there when he gave a speech, uh, I guess it was, wow, was it only a week ago at uh, George Washington University, kind of talking about his doctrine. And frankly, he didn't sound very different from Jeff Sessions. They actually sounded a lot angrier than Jeff Sessions has on mm-hmm. some of these things, like how dare you run us down, change the law, get out of our way, uh, kind of big swinging nightclub sounding cop guy. And, and I, I'm wondering, you know, what your impression, you, you've covered him a lot more closely than I have. Uh, is this somebody who's kind of being overlooked in terms of uh, what he's doing and what he's saying uh, when you look at the the broader brush of, of people that are getting a lot of attention in the news in the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, I think people expected him to be a lot different than he was because he's this guy that uh, people thought that Trump might pick somebody like Chris Kobach from Kansas mm-hmm. who's you know engineered some of the crackdowns on undocumented immigrants around the country. Arizona, Arizona law, yeah. Most notably, yeah. So people expected it to be a lot worse. So I think people thought that Kelly would be, yeah, a moderating force. Um, I can't be in his head, but my sense of him, he's a military guy. So I think he thinks following orders is important in the chain of command. And he, um, you know, has said a lot of times that he reports to the president. And so he does what the president asks him to do. And um One of the things that seems to make him absolutely furious, and you saw that in that speech, is when people uh, criticize ICE agents and Border Patrol agents and officers and, um, you know, say that there are rogue agents. It's like seems hard for him to even admit that there's a possibility that out of these thousands of workers, some of them might be doing something wrong. Um, And given the fact that Trump and the White House have said that they're unleashing people to do kind of whatever they want and not have any priorities, just do whatever they think is best. Um, I think that that's something that's super, super troubling to people to have somebody at the top who won't acknowledge that there's potential for that to go very badly. Yeah. And, and I, I think that that's notable. You're talking about how you know, he's a company man. He's a soldier. He's following orders. The, the other thing, what drives him nuts, what makes him angry is any criticism of his people. And I think that, you know, as somebody working for him, that's probably a wonderful thing. I think that uh, you know, I, I having talked to some customs and ICE agents, like there was a morale problem under Obama. Oh and, yeah, and, and, terrible morale problem. Yeah, and, and I think part part of that was was because of how they were handling uh, some of, of the the folks from Central America, and then they felt that it was catch and release. I think part of it was you know they they originally were were deporting a lot of people under Obama is to make a point that he could be tough on this, and then he switched policy. Uh, some some of it was legitimate, some of it was, was ideological, but uh, you know some of it was structural. And there's frustrating things about working in those agencies that I, I think he's legitimately trying to address. But this is you know this is an area that that probably is more ripe for uh, 
overreach for for possible corruption for for you know excessive force than anything else because these aren't citizens they don't have rights in the same way that us citizens have rights and it is much harder to cover it's much harder to get out and it's much more problematic uh, and, and you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of these. You know, we're, we're seeing there's not probably not going to be a shutdown. There's not going to be a border wall in there. There is going to be more money for uh, border security. And, and would love to talk. You know, we still don't know all the details about this, but what that means in terms of them building, you know, possibly more private prison contracts to build uh, areas where they can have more beds along the border for preparation for deportation. I mean, what is this looking like? Do you get the sense that this is going to be? Kind of how things have been run. Uh, what what are the conditions like in in these these quasi prisons, and you know, how much recourse is there for people who get caught up in this, who may not be getting treated fairly? You know, how much access to the lawyers do they have? Things like that. Yeah. So I mean, it varies to some extent. I think in terms of the recourse, one of the biggest issues is that. You have a lot of people who um, are scared to come forward and report something because that they feel that that could hurt their chances of not being deported. Or you have a lot of people who have already been deported, and then what are they supposed to do? So, you know, there are people who are um, raped on the way to be deported, and then they're in another country, and that's not that easy to do much of anything about it once you're not here. Um, in terms of access to lawyers, uh, I think it varies a lot. There are lawyers who um, have been shut out of places. Um, they make it kind of difficult sometimes for them to do their jobs. Um, it varies, so I don't want to, you know, say that all of the ICE detention centers, you know, make it impossible to see lawyers. I don't think that that's the case, but there certainly have been problems with that. And um, the in detention, the Trump administration wants to make detention um, through all of this lower standards, basically, than they had before. They currently have this like mammoth um, set of standards. They uh, reportedly want to take that away and replace it with these much lower standards. So you're going to have a lot more detention. Um, they've already said that and probably will get the money to do it. And it's going to be a lot worse than it is now. Um, you know, things like checking on people every 15 minutes, which takes time to do, obviously, for officers. And um, that could go away. Standards on putting people in solitary could go away. Uh, so it's a it's a bad situation for undocumented people and, you know, anybody who cares about them being treated in a way that's you know fairly humane and this is these are i think important it's important to remember it's a civil violation to be in the country um without status so this is not something where they're being supposed to be being punished it's not a criminal prison it's a civil detention center and i i think that some of the people i've talked to think that that's just gonna totally disappear i have a question it, it, this is like <clears throat> I, I think we look at this and it's particularly cruel, I think, for a lot of us to watch. But is this the future of the Republican Party? Because I think that Trump has tapped into something and he's tapped into a lot of anger about, you know, undocumented workers who are here. And then you sort of also have this other side of the Republican Party that's grappling with, well, we can't be so cruel forever and ever. Amen. But like, is this where this is going to go? Is this where this stays for the Republican Party? Or, are they, or is there a lesson for them to learn here? 
I mean, I think it's really hard to say after the 2012 election, all the Republicans were like, oh, my gosh, we need to change yeah. on immigration or else we're going to lose forever with Latino voters. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, that voting block is only growing. They're only alienating Latinos more. Um, yeah. And, and not just Latinos. I mean, Asian-Americans are a yeah. very rapidly growing population. And I think people overlook that because largely they're concentrated in pretty blue states, you know, New York, Illinois, California, especially uh, Washington, Oregon. But I, I mean, th these are there are a lot of different immigrant populations and uh, Latinos are really important. But yeah, I mean, they're actually they're not even the fastest growing Asian Americans are the fastest yeah. growing right now. Uh, and, you know, I, I, going to that point, we're talking about, you know, 2012. Reince Priebus was the head of the RNC at the time that did this so-called autopsy that basically said, we've got to stop alienating everybody who's not an old white male. And the largest th the only policy recommendation in there was we have to get immigration reform done. And Marco Rubio, like the good soldier that he is made a real attempt at it with a lot of other people. I think, you know, there's some people who are involved in that who were very serious policy, have been pushing this for a long time. I think Rubio is like, oh, here's what the RNC wants. We're going to do this. This yeah. is the path for the party. Um, clearly didn't wind up exactly where they're hoping. And now we see this rabid reaction uh, swing back the other way, uh, both within the country as a whole, but within the party specifically. And I don't think this is a sustainable thing for the GOP. And I'm wondering, you know, Donald Trump won the presidency. I think there's a real chance he could win re-election. I think people are underestimating, you know, everyone's looking at how bad his poll numbers are. They're better than they were during the campaign for a lot of those stretches. And the election is very far away right. at this point. Right. And, and even big gains in 2018, I think Democrats are getting a little over their skis right now. Uh, but long-term sustainability. I mean, you're looking at these demographic numbers. Can a Republican Party win in 10, 15, 20 years if they don't do something about this, if they don't go in a different direction? And how damaging might this be long-term even if they try and move in a different direction uh, now that they're the party of Trump? Yeah, well, and I think that one thing that's happened now is that a lot of this sentiment isn't just anti-undocumented immigrant, it's anti-immigrant, any immigrant, mm -hmm. which, you know, includes sometimes the people that people think might be an immigrant who <laughs> their parents have lived here and their, you know, grandparents lived here, they were born here. So I think that that's extra, extra alienating for, yeah, like you said, Asian Americans as well. Um, so it's I, I think that it's not sustainable. That said, you know, we, everybody was wrong on that last time. Um, so I think that it could be wrong again for a, a while. But eventually, I think the country is changing. Um, there's nothing that like, you know, just assuming that somebody will be a Democrat, that Latinos will vote Democrat forever um, is it seems silly. But. Uh, and I think isn't the case, but eventually Republicans would stop have to stop alienating so many Latino voters if they want to succeed. Yeah, I think. and I, I think it's, I think it's interesting because there's two states that everyone holds out California as. California is what the America will be in the future, and I think that there, there's some truth, but some limitations to that. The other really important state because of its size, because of its diversity, is Texas. Yeah, and. You know, Democrats keep talking about how they're hoping to make it blue. We'll see if they ever actually manage to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to try a little harder. They could try a little That's harder. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Texas, though, had some of these forward-thinking 
going to change the party on immigration. Republicans. I mean, this is this is where George W. Bush came from. This is where Rick Perry came from, who everyone mm-hmm. forgets got the you know the crap kicked out of him during the primary because he didn't hate immigrants because he was open to keeping immigrants here because you know he he backed state tuition for Dreamers. Uh, Texas is going in a different direction than it used to. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the sanctuary city move that they're making. Can you walk us through what, what they've been up to? Yeah, sure. So the Senate had already passed this bill, and then yesterday the House passed its version of this bill that's supposed to, you know, end sanctuary cities. And so sanctuary cities, it's it's super complicated. I'll try and go through it really quickly. But basically it's this vague term that's applied just very widely. I sort of think that we should just stop using it, but obviously I still am. So, um, But basically it means that uh, in most cases that these places don't cooperate fully with ICE. So ICE asks them to hold somebody that they would otherwise release on bond or even because they'd never charge them with a crime. Uh, and then they just don't, they don't, they don't do it. Um, and they say that this is because it violates the Constitution to hold people for extra time um, without a warrant. And courts have ruled that that is true. And um, also that it costs money and that it hurts police community relations to have people thinking that uh, cops are ICE agents, essentially. Um, This makes uh, the Trump administration very, very angry, and it makes Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, very angry. They really, really oppose policies like this. And so this bill would uh, go after these places um, and then uh, in a really extreme way. So it wouldn't just be taking away their funding. It's also going after the officials who do them by charging them with a misdemeanor um, that would get them thrown out of office. And the Texas uh, House bill even has a measure that would um, create a civil process to remove them from office. So you're talking about taking local elected officials and having them lose their job for a policy that they say is the right policy for law enforcement and constitutional reasons. So that's a pretty extreme situation. And the other side of it is also just allowing, making it so that um, police around the state can do various things, can ask about immigration status when they stop somebody. The House Democrats tried to include an amendment where they said this would only be for adults. Republicans voted that down. So that means that they voted for allowing even children to be asked about immigration status. So it's, um, you know, it's passed both chambers. They now have to reconcile it. Um, but then it'll get a signature from Abbott and um, Texas will become the new Arizona, basically. Do you think this I mean, I got to imagine this is going to be tied up in the courts, right? Yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I mean, and, and Texas judges are interesting. A lot of those were, I mean... W was down there for a long time. Rick Perry was down there for a long time. There are a lot of conservative judges who are appointed by those guys who might not be quite as conservative on immigration issues. And I've we've seen some really interesting rulings out of out of uh, the Texas courts on some of this stuff. But yeah, you know, I, I think it's fascinating. I mean, here we are looking at a state that is probably going to be majority minority within the decade. If I, I haven't checked the latest numbers, but I mean, they're approaching that very quickly. And the dominant party and Republicans in Texas have only been dominant really for about a decade uh, is going this hard against the fastest growing population in the state. 
Uh, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out long term politically there. This is, you know, everyone talks about how California is the leading edge. And you, know, you go back to uh, 94 in the California gubernatorial election when they had a very draconian anti-immigrant uh, bit of legislation uh, that, that actually what, what, you know, what was the governor was kind of eh about, but uh, really hurt Republicans down the line. And it went that went from a state that used to be a swing state to a state that. Republicans can never win again. And I think Texas is, is moving that direction uh, a little bit right now uh, where it might get a little bit competitive. And, and I, but it, it's, it's also, I don't think this is helpful for democracy. You know, stepping back from policy positions where you see uh, different ethnic groups locked in with different parties, you know, how does representative democracy, how does getting to an agreement on anything that can help the greater good function if people are basically fighting for their own rights at or their own power at the expense of everybody else's? I mean, do you think this is sustainable long term? Um, I, a, I mean, that's a that's big a, question. That's but. a huge question. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, the country is demographically changing and I don't think that all of these trends on party will last forever because I, I don't think it's sustainable. Um, in terms of Texas, just a, a thought I had going back a second, um, is that this Sanctuary Cities bill, since it does include this component about asking about immigration status, you know, sort of whenever police stop somebody, that is going to be a situation that affects so, so many citizens um, in Texas that are Latino because those are the people that are going to be, you know, feel like they're being racially profiled. And so this is the type of thing that is super alienating even for citizens. Um, but, yeah, these types of things only cement that kind of um, politics of we have to vote this way to protect uh, our community and those types of issues make it so that, you know, Republicans might not win even if they, you know, they're always talking about, oh, well, Latinos are with us on um, various things, social conservative things sometimes. That's not really borne out in polling. But uh, and, and big if you're alienating them on. Too. Yeah, like yeah. Different Hispanic That's populations, true. even different Mexican populations think yeah. very differently about things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, I, I think that it's it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out real quick because we, we're going to have to wrap up in a sec. But obviously, speaking of sanctuary cities, a pretty big decision recently. Can you can you just touch upon where you think the courts are headed and what this means for so many cities across the country, uh, including, you know, New York, my paper, like really cares about uh, could be losing major funding. Yeah. So basically what happened in the court is that uh, they ruled that they blocked the order. However, they can still and you wouldn't know this from listening to the White House because they've really, really misconstrued it. But they've ruled that they can still enforce this one piece of law, which is that they have to um, share information, which all pretty much every jurisdiction is like, great, we do share information. You can't block our funding. Yeah. Um, so if the ruling ends up uh being in the courts that they can enforce that they can't do this other vague threats about holding people which they've made then you're basically back to the status quo and these places don't really have their money actually threatened at the same time though what they're trying to do the trump administration as well is make people turn against those types of policies 
I think it's a lot of rhetorical stuff. So they, yeah. you know, are really misconstruing all of this. Well, and, and the great irony of this is is the money, the programs they're trying to block, named after a New York City cop who was killed while guarding an immigrant who had told about crimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the, the the irony of that, like undercutting the community relations between immigrants and cops here, I, I think is profound. But it was really great to have you on, Elise Foley, with the Huffington Post a real savant about immigration (laughs) and uh, we touched a lot of topics. I appreciate you coming in. Yeah, thank you. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph, Washington Bureau Chief of the New York Daily News, sitting in for Bill today. And we have Jordan Cheriton from the Young Turks. We're going to be talking a lot about the first 99 closing in on 100 days and uh, getting back to General Flynn in a minute, too. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. All right. So, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, I used to work at Disney. That's amazing. Yeah. Were you in costume? In a, in a former, I was. That's a, that's a whole other story. But in a former <laughs> life. But there used to be rumors that there used to be real people who would show up on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and, like, play characters mm-hmm. during the thing. Well, this actually happened earlier this week. Johnny Depp dressed up as his character, Jack Sparrow, and sat in on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and people lost their minds. So, like... They didn't make a big announcement about it. They didn't put out a big press release. They just sort of put him on the ride where he acted as Captain Jack. Because what else is he doing? Right. Yeah. I'm sure he got paid a ton of money (laughs) just to show up and do that. So people freaked out. They, of course, put it all over social media. But it's like Disney then confirmed it after the fact. They said, yeah, that was actually him. He got completely dressed up and acted in character for the... Pirates of the Caribbean ride. I, I will give him credit because I have seen multiple news stories in the past where he will go into children's hospitals and yeah. dress up as Jack Sparrow. He does this yeah. quite often. This is a different uh, situation, but either yeah. way, that's yeah, he's embraced that character, dedicated to his craft. I, I gotta, you know, I, I'm not like a big celebrity guy. Johnny Depp is kind of awesome. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, no, like, he's cool. He's super cool. Give him full credit. Uh, this is troubling. Government scientists have launched an investigation they announced yesterday because there is an unusually large number of humpback whale deaths from North Carolina to Maine. They are calling it the first such, quote, unusual mortality event. That 
should scare you. 41 whales have died in the region in 2016 and in 2017 as of now. That is the uh, exceeds the average of about 14 per year. So it's normally 14 Jesus. per year. We're seeing 41 already in a year and less than a half. Uh, 10 of the 20 whales that have been examined were killed by collisions with boats, something scientists uh, are having a uh, hard time explaining because there hasn't been a spike in ship traffic or anything. So they're sort of at a loss. And so they're now having to say, like, we need to stop and reevaluate and take a look and see just what the hell is going on. But, you know. 41 dead humpback whales off the coast of, uh, like, the mid-Atlantic and, and, and a little higher up is kind of terrifying. Got to make the whales great again. Make the whales great again. Yes, exactly. Uh, last night was the NFL draft. The number one pick overall was defensive end for the Texas a- for Texas A&M. He went to the Cleveland Browns. Congratulations to Miles Garrett, six foot four, two hundred seventy pound pass rusher. Just a beast of a human being. Just a gigantic. This guy yeah. is just carved out of pure rock. If you see a picture of him, yeah. Uh, not sure how he's going to fit in on the Browns, a terrible, terrible football team. But we will see. We will see. Uh, and the Chicago Bears took the number two Let's pick. Let's not talk about that. Oh, that's right. You're a Chicago guy. Yeah, let's not talk about that. Mitchell Trubisky, quarterback from North Carolina. How you feel about that, Cam? Let's not talk about that. Bears needed a new quarterback? They needed a new quarterback. <laughs> not that one? Uh, we'll see. I mean, he, he's got a lot of upside. Dude's got a lot of talent. Uh, we couldn't beat out the other guy to start at North Carolina <laughs> until his senior year. Makes me a little uncomfortable. Uh, but now he's but, the number two pick in the NFL draft. And I hear he's a Packers fan, too. Of yeah, course he is. People oh, dug up, people dug up his old is. tweets, and he's oh, there are some, there are other ones that even on this show, I don't think I could read on air that he tweeted <laughs> oh. uh, that uh, my friends were just sending to me last night. You know what? It, it was one of those like I had this like you know I'm torn between like morality of like can I really like football? How damaging this is and. Uh, checking out, and it's great that the Bears are so terrible because I don't have yeah. to make that decision anymore. Fair. Yeah, I don't watch football anymore for that reason, but uh, I'm here to report you decide. Uh, one other quick note, number four was Leonard Fournette from LSU. People were worried about where he was going to go. Jaguars picked him up. So that's the NFL draft. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph, Washington Bureau Chief of the New York Daily News. With me now is Jordan Cheriton of Media and the Young Turks, and we will be talking all things Donald Trump. Thanks for coming in, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me. So, big picture, 100 days, 10,000 feet. What stands out to you about uh, the Trump era uh, the country is still alive. Uh, we're still standing. Uh, I'm actually having covered probably, I don't know, 30 to 40 of his rallies, events around the country. I'm not completely surprised. Uh, the one thing that I think I underestimated is how bad he is on the environment. Um, you know, he kind of spoke in loose terms uh, on the road uh, during the campaign, but didn't exactly talk about just decimating the entire planet. Uh, today, he's signing an executive uh, order regarding Obama's offshore drilling rules. So uh, that's been very surprising. Uh, the other thing that kind of more so than the big picture 360 degree stuff is um, this does not seem like a man uh, capable of learning anything. 
I mean, you read article after article about how he needs to be presented things, not many options, but instead kind of presented things almost like you would be relating it to a sixth grader. So it doesn't seem like there's much room for uh, improvement. Um, and the thing that also stands out to me, what I, what I told Young Turks uh, viewers during the campaign, is this man is a fraud. I mean, he just said, a, I think he just said it to Reuters, but he said, you know, I'm not a nationalist. I'm a, I'm a nationalist and a globalist. Well, <laughs> I'm telling you, if he would have said that on the road, I don't think he'd be president uh, right now. So uh, most of the top line thing, the taxes, the health care, uh, I expected, didn't expect him to be this incompetent. But uh, I'm not at all surprised with with what we've been seeing. That, that's been my biggest takeaway out of the first hundred days. By the way, is just the lack of um, coordination or preparedness, or just sort of feeling like they have the job under control. And, and like it's big things. Like they had their travel ban that got shot down. They had another version of it that got shot down. They had the um, uh, the sanctuary city stuff that got shot down. And and that. I think is emblematic of like what kind of administration they're running, but also it's the little things like they're constantly misspelling things. Mm. And they yeah. sent out a transcript of secretary of the treasury, Stephen Mnuchin and his, his comments at a briefing the other day. And they identified him as secretary of commerce. Mm. And like, I know that that might be a little petty and I know that people make mistakes, but the rapid pace of mistakes and just like clerical errors that come out of yeah. the White House is frankly a little shocking. Yeah, and, and you know, I'd like to think they have it a little more buttoned up. I and I think this is emblematic of, of what happened here is that he didn't expect to win. Right. He never thought he was going to be where he is now. As much as he raged against the polls, he believed the polls, and you look at where they are. Basically, they hated Chris Christie. Kushner and Christie had a huge falling out, uh, mostly because Christie sent Kushner's dad to jail. And <laughs> For being a terrible person, by the way. I mean, if anybody deserved to go to jail, it was Jared Kushner's dad. Yeah. Sorry. Setting that aside, Christie was sent to run the transition team. Why was he sent to run the transition team? Not because they thought he was the most capable guy who could do the best job with it. They were trying to get rid of the guy. They sent him down to D.C. when they didn't think it would matter. Uh, he took it fairly seriously, it seems. He had somewhat of a loose outline game plan of how to do a transition, what what people might go into what jobs. And they fired him and tossed the whole plan and did the entire transition seat of their pants. And I actually think there are some good, smart, hardworking people in the White House and in some senior positions. Not all of them, obviously, but I, I you know, they're trying. I see them trying, um, but you you have to have a system. You have to have a setup, and just the lack of vetting for some of these key positions, I think, is uh, startling. And I, we're, we're just still seeing that play out, and the, the combination of some of the people who are in position and how many jobs are still open because they're like, oh, now we get it. Now we have to vet. And you know, I think they're getting beaten up for not having some of these jobs filled, but at least they're doing the vetting now. I, I, I mean, you know, but Michael Flynn is like number one with a bullet about how much vetting did they do here? I mean, what what is your sense, Jordan, about like what did they actually do at any point during the transition? I don't think they did anything. I mean, look at Stephen Miller, for example. Uh, there, there's been reports. I mean, the guy is like. Uh, <laughs> The, the mean girl uh, of of 
politics. I mean, yeah. he was treacherous uh, in high school, college, uh, documented racism, xenophobia, leading the charge against uh, student immigrants, this and that. I think he's 31, which, you know, not not a problem with that. But Nothing wrong with he, that. He, he, yeah, I'm 30. He's <laughs> he's writing the the inaugural, uh, you know, they don't call it a Muslim ban, but a uh, refugee ban. Yeah. Um, and it was a disaster. So not only are you not vetting people on you know, ethics, morality, history, but just basic competency. Yeah. Um, Flynn, I think it, it goes to Trump really thought that um, he, he kind of went into the White House kind of still hearing the crowd noise at, at his rallies, you know, so thinking like just the bluster and all that was going to carry him over. So with Flynn, uh, Flynn was a was a fan favorite, uh, you know, along his rallies. Flynn is someone he listened to um, very, very closely uh, among his surrogates uh, along the campaign trail. And I think uh, Donald Trump kind of. Again, he, he's he's a, he's a used car salesman, so he doesn't really care about oh, this guy went to Russia and got speaking fees or this or that. Uh, and he also just didn't think the media or anybody would actually dig into it. So, yeah, uh, yeah I don't think there was a lot of uh, vetting. Uh, maybe Christie did more vetting, but uh, I don't think there was a lot of vetting for a lot of these positions. Right. And this is something that I keep coming back to. And this is something that is big and small on major serious issues and just day to day how they're running the White House minor things that they're screwing up or that they're not giving reporters or that they're misleading us on and it's unclear whether they don't know any better or whether they're doing it intentionally. Is it incompetence or is it malice? And it's something that often it's been the incompetence. I, you know, I mean, sometimes these are true believers who are doing things that, you know, a lot of people might fundamentally disagree with, but a lot of times they're just messing up basic stuff. And I think it is has been kind of wild to see how unprepared so many of them were for this. And you know, I mean, with, with Stephen Miller, I remember at at a previous job, him just calling about random immigration stories that weren't even about his boss, that weren't even about Jeff Sessions, and yelling at the editors about the way that that undocumented people were portrayed or the way things were described. He had enough free time to just call about random immigration stories when he was Sessions guy. Uh, and now he is in a very senior White House position. Uh, and, you know, there, there's another person uh, who shall not be named who we were told was going, you know, it happened to be my day in the pool duty. So I was like the one reporter who was supposed to be at the events. They'd called the lid. So I was officially allowed to leave, but I was hanging out because it was just early. Um, they announced, like, with almost no notice, we're going to have a briefing on Syria. And this is, like, right after the they bombed them. And so... I sent out a message just kind of, you know, to be courteous to the entire press list. They're doing a background briefing on Syria. Show up and they're like, no, it's going to be off the record. Okay. So we put out, you know, like you can't. So like I I had to work out with a a very nice, very competent White House staffer who I've worked with on other stuff. Um, Okay. They're, we're going to have to, I'm sending something out. So, you know, the, the, the thing that came out was, announced a background briefing insisted when we arrived that it was going to be off the record reach out to x person for more information about this and it was just and it was just like even internally they seemed baffled by it like other staffers were like yeah, what'd you do dude like that that isn't how this operates cleanly uh and so yeah it, it's just it's stuff like that and i'm like that may seem really minor and kind of in the weeds but that's every day there. That's just like every single little step of this White House 
they are learning on the fly. And some of these are smart people who are picking it up and they make a mistake once and they don't make it again. And I give a lot of them credit uh, for trying to do the basic things well and learning. Um, but it seems the boss may not be doing that. And I'm curious, you know, we're through 100 days. We saw a lot of sound and fury, some of it signifying a lot, a lot of it signifying nothing. Uh, and clearly, I think immigration is something where they're making a big impact. And, you know, was just on talking with Elise about all the things they're doing and how powerful some of this can be. Uh, we didn't even get into the numbers of, of you know how many how f- much fewer border apprehensions there are because people are scared to come in, which you know it was a campaign promise that you know has being fulfilled uh, and whether that holds be- because the optics are not uh, the amount of deportations they're doing. Uh, but when you're talking about a lot of other things that actually need legislation, haven't exactly seen much done. And some of that I think is on Trump and some of that I think is on the House and Senate Republicans. They haven't even been able to get Obamacare bill through. They haven't been able to get, you know, he, he got no money for his, his border wall funding or he's going to get no money in his border wall funding as we keep the government open, which seems like the by far the most likely scenario right now. And, you know, I, I'm curious, Do you, I mean, do you think that President Trump really thought about how or had a good grasp of how Congress functioned and do you think he's getting any better at dealing with Congress? You know, looking at the healthcare debate versus where they are on how they handled taxes this week. No, I think he was thought he was going to go in with Chuck Schumer, you know, Mitch McConnell, and make a deal like he's you know <laughs> in Queens uh, trying to you know, <laughs> sell some type of uh, some goodies. No, he didn't know. I don't. I don't think he cares either. But it's not. I, I hate to defend uh, President Trump, but it's not all on him. I mean, you read you read about the the health care issues. I mean, there's 30 to 40 Republicans that simply don't want to repeal it because they're scared for their jobs. Because oh, shocker, the people in their district actually like it and either have pre-existing conditions or whatever. I mean, I'm a single payer guy. I, I don't love Obamacare, but compared to what they're trying to push, uh, obviously I, I advocate for it. But um, it, it goes to the Republican Party's fraudulence too. Because they, it's a lot easier to beat your chest for you know eight years and repeal it for you know sixty times or whatever it was, but now that it's in practice, um, they actually know that if they repeal this without anything strongly in place to to protect uh, the largest part of their constituencies, a lot of Republicans in Florida, for example, uh, uh, seniors uh, don't don't want to repeal it. But what I've actually been most surprised about is. You know, being on the road uh, following Trump, again, I kind of thought he was a a business Democrat in Tea Party's clothing, you know. So um, and you just look at clips from, you know, 1999, 2000, you know, pro-choice and, you know, a lot of a lot of. So I kind of thought he would come in and and try to be that deal maker. But he really just right out of the gate. I mean, very draconian conservative policies. So. It's a question of is this who Trump actually is, or is he is his strings being pulled? Kind of like the last person in the room, uh, he goes with the, what the last person in the room says. Problem is, there's been this palace intrigue. Uh, the media fixates on is it is it Bannon is the last person in the room? Is it Miller? Yeah. Is it Reince? Uh, who is it? So well, and I, and I think some of that gets overblown. But I think some of that is really important. You know, the Bannon Kushner fight that Kushner won, I think, is pretty damn important about where this presidency is going. At least in the short term, until Trump changes his mind again, which keeps happening. But, you know, Kushner is basically, he is a Democrat. And, you know, he's going to stay out of Trump's way in certain Cuck. issues. 
Is that what Bannon calls him, a cuck? Yeah. I, I mean, like, you know, and, and, and there's a, a globalist Gary is the way they refer to Gary Cohn. That's right. Uh, That's right. We, and, uh, you know, there was a report, I think Ax, it might have been Axios or Politico put out a story about, you know, when when the, the Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, those folks are texting about him, they just use a globe emoji mm-hmm. to talk about him. Um, and, there but, was a, and there was a story about him behind closed doors. He's 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 advocating for uh, a modern day Glass Steagall. Yeah, and you look at that compared to like you know Peter Navarro or, or, or some of these other folks. I mean, there there are not a lot of people who agree on a lot of things in the White House, and we've seen that. You know, Bill Clinton did that. He did the triangulation. He had Dick Morris come in. There was, you know, uh, there's been other presidencies. You know, famously Lincoln had a lot of people disagree on a lot of things. Teams of rivals, but these guys aren't pulling the same direction on anything. And the problem is Donald Trump is not, you know, as much as he touts himself as this leader, tough guy, makes the decisions, he's really indecisive. You know, they they demanded a health care bill. House Republicans called their bluffs. They didn't have the vote. Had to pull it last minute. They blinked, which I think was, you know, they should have done earlier and they should have listened to Paul Ryan and not forced the issue as they did. Um said he was done with it then they're moving out of taxes well sort of they come back to health care all of a sudden he realizes he's closing in 100 days this last week has been nuts this last week was donald trump saying oh no the 100 days is here this matters this matters this matters and rather than downplaying it like most presidents downplay this they're like look it's it's just the first of many you know thousands of days in office Here's how this matters. Uh, Trump, while publicly saying this doesn't matter, even though he has a contract out, this is what I'll do in my first 100 days, just started freaking out, it seems. And promise on Friday, without telling his aides, publicly told the AP, we're going to have a tax plan on Wednesday. And then you saw that what happened with uh, Steve Mnuchin and, and Gary Cohn coming out and, and and trotting out essentially what was a warmed over, more simple, more simplified, less clear version of what had been their campaign tax reform plan. And demand, you know, all of a sudden senior White House aides are pushing, we're going to have a health care, you know, we're going to vote this week in the House. Look at this. We're going to show progress. It's all about the optics. They didn't actually have anything. And, you know, I, I, how constraining do you think Washington is for Donald Trump? And I mean, you, you said you don't really see him learning. I mean, we're through the 100 days where you have some momentum. What becomes of this presidency in the next 600,000 days? <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, occasionally uh, you think it might not la- last that long. But I think... Yeah, I'm not sure we're going to be around that much yeah, <laughs> uh, if we keep picking fights with nuclear powers. But, <laughs> yeah, you know. Right. We'll but, uh, you know, I think I think Trump has to... You know, Kushner, uh, the Ivanka wing, that's great. But I think he has to get some more people in there who actually have history legislating. You know, I mean, Jared Kushner might be more moderate than um, definitely more moderate than a, than a Steve Bannon. But he doesn't have many people like right around him. The people, the last people in the room um, with with history legislating on, a, on one end. That's a good thing, because to a certain degree, I think the reason people voted for him uh, and to some degree, uh, certain people like Bernie Sanders is they like things to change. Yeah. They'd like business as usual to change and don't want these same um, kind of, you know, business as usual people in place. But he needs some people in that know how to craft 
legislation, know how to whip votes, and uh, you know know how to get something done. I, I think the problem is he's gotten really nothing done. It, you know, the Republicans ranted against Obama first. You know, the economy was in shambles. You're starting with health care. I mean, it seems pretty evident that maybe it would be a smart move to go towards infrastructure. Yeah. You know? And let's go to that because, yeah. you know, I think that was a reason. America's falling apart. America isn't what it was. We need a change. I think it was a reason a lot of people voted for him, especially in, you know, the upper Midwest you know, from, you know, Illinois. Like, I've seen it deteriorate. Um, clearly a big example of that, Flint, Michigan. And, and I hear you've done some reporting about what's happened and what's happening there. Can you walk us through what the situation is and whether there's been any developments? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. Uh, I think in the in the Trump derangement syndrome of the media, uh, no disrespect to anybody here, I think everything else has been kind of forgotten. Uh, Flint, three years is, is the deadline uh, that the, the, the anniversary just passed of them switching the water source. They still can't drink the water. Um, I was just at a town hall last week where six residents were arrested, literally uh, manhandled by police for voicing dissent and, and, and getting angry. Uh, there's issues beyond lead. There's bacteria being found in water, not only in Flint, but uh, East Chicago, Indiana has a lead crisis. You don't see much of this. And I think my issue is there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, we can't normalize Trump's racism and xenophobia, which I think is great. And I agree. But uh, there's kind of been a, a normalization of an American city poisoned and no results. I yeah. mean, if this was if this was D.C. where it happened, the National Guard would have been in, in a few days and it would have been fixed in six months. So yeah. and, and I think this is honestly what drove a lot of voters either to sit out the election or to vote for Trump. And, you know, you look at he, Hillary Clinton did really poorly with African-American voters throughout the industrial Midwest, mm -hmm. like really poorly. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't like Trump made huge gains, but he made some gains compared to where Mitt Romney was. And uh, I think that there's a lot of coastal, the, I hate the elite liberal media thing, but if you're living in, in a fairly wealthy area with fairly good education system and a functioning infrastructure and setting aside what's been going on with the metro here lately, which shows infrastructural investment, probably a good thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, f fairly functional, you get to some areas where like the roads were paved or the pipes did work, or the schools did function, and you understand this frustration. And I don't think that a lot of people on the left, A, are really cognizant of what's happening in a lot of these pockets of the country, or B, really have figured out how to empathize and message on this. And I, you know, I, I think there's some glaring exceptions. That, you know, as, uh, Tom Perez is still getting his feet under him, but I think he actually does get it as you know a former... Uh, you, know, you know, from Buffalo, you know, wor worked his way through college as a garbage man, um, the son of immigrants. Yeah, Sherrod Brown, I think, gets this really well. I think Jennifer Granholm really got this. Um, a lot of Democrats are still missing this, and and frankly, a lot of progressives. And as important as the social issues are, as important as immigration is, that isn't necessarily how you're going to win back an election or win back the House. And I'm wondering, you know, as somebody who spent a lot of time, you know, it was, sounds like just in Michigan, do you feel like they feel like Democrats have their backs still? No. Um, I, I, I mean, I covered the Bernie uh, campaign more than any other campaign. And I'll tell you, um, it's a lot of these areas, it's like a ghost town. Yeah. I mean, my, I use my older brother as kind of like the uh, cocktail crowd media uh, example. He actually is, I love him, nice guy. But he works at a hedge fund in New York. He's like, Jordan, you know, unemployment's 4.6 percent. And, you know, the economy's improving and home equity. I'm like, John, half the country's poor. 
I mean, I go to Ohio, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania. I mean, there's streets where there's just boarded up, boarded up storefronts, yeah. after boarded up storefronts, factories closed down. And, you know, I think the Democratic Party wrongly, because the Democratic Party took the country off the cliff and saved the country from the abyss, they thought they could just rest on their laurels with, with the numbers. And obviously, you know, uh, President Obama deserves a lot of credit for that. But this anti-establishment fervor and this populist, faux populist tone Trump um, was tossing out there was, was like oxygen to people in Michigan and Wisconsin and, you know, Hillary Clinton. We don't need to re- relitigate it, but she just couldn't credibly do that. Yeah. She couldn't credibly. Well, and I think them. you saw it even this week. I mean, Donald Trump, I guess it was last week, was taught, went to Wisconsin and was talking about we're going to renegotiate and after we're going to help out the dairy farmers. They're ripping us off on dairy. And a lot of people were sniggering on Twitter. And I'm not saying he wasn't a little silly about how he went about it, but you know what? Wisconsin dairy farmers, and interestingly, you see Chuck Schumer, of all people, strongly agreeing with Trump, ready to work with him on on this, because why? New York dairy farmers are also getting squeezed. Mm -hmm. And that is something that directly impacts large communities. And in Wisconsin, and clearly an important swing state, that a lot of people in the liberal media and a lot of people in Democratic Party generally just kind of giggle at and think it sounds silly. Mm-hmm. And this is people's lives and livelihoods. And I feel like you know, there there's something true about, you know, overlooking large swaths of the country. Well, really, I mean, that's the that was the downfall of the Clinton campaign. And I also think a lot of these polling outlets, because uh, Robbie Book, Clinton's campaign manager, was like, you know, the data guy. And that's all he fixated on. But when you only fixate on models and this and that, you don't actually go out, not just for like, a year, but actually like have people from those communities go out and and really learn what's going on on the ground. Same thing with 538 and these other places. I mean, you kind of you they look at, oh, that's anecdotal. Well, if you have enough anecdotal, that becomes data. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think they yeah. forgot. Well, and and you, you, Bernie won Wisconsin yep. primary. Bernie won in a surprise, won the Michigan primary. He took all of Clinton's efforts to win in Ohio, in Iowa. Uh, and, you know, the Democrats are now saying, OK, how we're going to beat Trump, how we're going to take back the House is through these well-educated suburban conservative moderate districts that are so appalled by Trump. And that is important strategically, tactically, I think, to win back those seats. And there is a road to that, you know, more more diverse, more educated. That's what the Democratic Party is becoming. I think giving up on downscale voters, which it honestly seems like they're still looking at. They're still ready to do because that's where the numbers are. I think, you know, as many demographic and structural problems as the Republicans have, if Democrats can't figure out a way to start winning outside of urban areas, I don't really see a a uh, permanent comeback, even if 2018 is great for them. I have read this quote probably 20 times on air, and I'm not going to stop reading it because this is Chuck Schumer from last summer in Philadelphia when he was talking about Pennsylvania and Hillary Clinton's campaign, and he says, quote, for every blue-collar Democrat we lose in western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs in Philadelphia, and you could repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin, end quote. Spoken like one of the most tone-deaf politicians we have. Yeah. And he also, by the way, in 2014 said... uh, Doing Obamacare was a big mistake, and he got a yeah. lot of outlash for that. But I think there's an elephant in the room, and I'm with the Young Turks, so obviously this is part of our DNA. 
I mean, the Democrats, they could be leading the charge at these resistance rallies, and that's all good. But these top-level Democrats, they're still taking money from the usual suspects. And don't Donald Trump won. It was, it was fraudulent with a lot of populist talk against that. And that is bringing yep. people on the left and right together uh, that they want the Wall Street right. special interests. And, and President Obama is about to go give a $400,000 yep. speech to a Wall Street group in New York uh, talking about health care. And, you know, whether or not you fully is OK, the optics of that are not great right now. Right. And I, and I think, you know, the Democrats, you, they're in some veins, they're doing what they did on the campaign. Trump, unpalatable, evil, awful. But they're not really they're not practicing what they preach because you could you could rant against him that, oh, yeah, he drained the swamp to make a much larger one. But I think uh, other than Bernie Sanders, there's there's not many leading Democrats. I see that uh, there was just a story that the DCCC is taking money hand over fist from lobbyists still. So I don't think they've really learned the lessons. It's not just um, that they ignored these uh, formerly industrialized areas. But uh, most of these people in in the heartland and elsewhere, p- particularly the millennials that drove Bernie, uh, they want politicians that actually uh, re- uh, respond to them, not special mm-hmm. interest. Yeah, easier said than done. Uh, really appreciate you coming in. It was a great chat. Uh, we're going to be coming back in a minute with Jennifer Hayrecord of Politico, a healthcare guru, to talk about the uh, zombie healthcare bill. This is a great time to be alive, ladies and gentlemen. This is an amazing time to be alive. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph with the New York Daily News. And on with me, Jennifer Haverkorn with Politico, the healthcare guru. <laughs> That's so, a lot to live up to. Well, you know, you write a lot of very intelligent pieces about it. Is this dead? Um, I think there's a famous movie that coined the term almost dead. And I think I think that's an accurate description right now. But, like, is... Are they going to take that fireplace tool and pump like oxygen? <laughs> what, what is that called into the body again? Or you have like a miracle max situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's possible. I, I, I don't. I think this is never going to die. Um, because think about it. Like, at what point can it die? Like, when are Republicans mm-hmm. going to stand up and be like, "Oh, that thing we campaigned upon for four election yeah. cycles in so many years, we're done with it." You know, it's it's just no matter how, even if this effort right now fails. It's going to keep coming back. Yeah. And let's walk through where we are right now, because we had a bill nobody liked that Trump demanded a vote on that didn't have anywhere near the votes that the centrists and the right wingers were very unhappy about that Trump had to blink and pull the bill last minute after making this as big a deal as possible and failing with his his cajoling bullying strategies. Thought it was gone, promised we're going to move on, we're giving up, screw this. All of a sudden we start closing in 100 days. And they're gone for recess, so they weren't talking to each other. We had these negotiations going on between 
Mark Meadows of the Freedom Caucus and Tom MacArthur, who's one member of the Tuesday group, but certainly not speaking for the Tuesday group, as mm-hmm. Paul Ryan keeps liking to stress, uh, you know, make, make it seem like MacArthur is where every moderate is, which is not factually accurate. Come back. Trump starts tweaking out that he doesn't have a 100 days accomplishment legislatively. And we start hearing rumors that we we're going to have a vote before the 100 days. Walk through what happened the last three days. So if you talk to folks in the Tuesday group, which, you know, the Freedom Caucus is very aligned. They vote in a pack. They need 80 percent of the group needs to agree before an endorsement. The Tuesday group is much more diverse and they they are not a homogenous group and they take different positions on all sorts of things, including this bill. Um, so a lot of folks in the Tuesday group are a little miffed, might be the right word, that Tom <laughs> MacArthur did this because it kind of... Um, you know, previously, the Tuesday group kind of skirted blame for the repeal bill mm-hmm. going down. And now that the conservatives are on board, it's really on the moderates to get the final yeah. votes. And and they don't like this bill. You know, I think there's true policy reasons they don't like this bill. Um, they're concerned very much about people with pre-existing conditions. But also the politics. The politics of this bill are just really bad for those moderates running in districts that are really tight, reddish, bluish, purplish. Um, and so, so right now, you know, Tom MacArthur came out with this amendment backed by Mark Meadows. The Freedom Group came out and said, yes, we support this. We're 100% behind it. Um, now the focus is on, are those moderates going to come on board? And I talked to a ton of moderates yesterday. I know every report, reporter in Washington was trying to get a hold of every moderate. And I couldn't find anyone that publicly flipped. I've heard um, reports from very good sources that a couple moderates did flip. And of course, any moderate who comes out now and says, I will support this bill is going to get a lot of attention. So maybe they don't want to do that until yeah. there is actually a vote. And I understand that. But there's no momentum beyond the Freedom Caucus. You know, there's no momentum of right. moderates. And like walking in the most conservative, ideological, hardline members is crucial for anything passing with only Republican votes. At the same time, if you were a moderate, who didn't like this bill in the first place and was worried that 24 million people are going to lose health care and was worried that this isn't actually going to do that much to you know control premium increases and that this is getting rid of you know protections for pre-existing conditions and then you make the changes that they made which okay only you know states can decide whether or not they're going to gut protections for for people and and put you know requirement you know for pre-existing conditions and some of these things and you know all all the nuance there the message is republicans are passing a bill that is a big tax cut for their wealthy and kicks a bunch of people off of health care and makes and doesn't help make things cheaper and that's an easy for once democrats have a, a, a bumper sticker that they can run on and this is i mean this seems like just a photo negative of what happened in 2010 when we covered this and all these moderate democrats i remember jason altmeyer Mm -hmm. you know who told reporters walking onto the floor he was going to vote for it and then voted against it and ended up losing a prime over actually he was one of the few who didn't just lose in the general (laughs) um the democrats who voted against obamacare still lost they still paid the price and i think we forget it doesn't really you know senators are have enough personality have enough money are well known enough from their state they can get some distance from whatever the national party is doing a little mm-hmm. bit although you saw in the last couple of years that hasn't really happened i think these moderates are just like screwed either way 
I mean, what yeah. do, what I, do I, you? By the way, I I I've, I want to start calling them something other than moderates because they're not exactly moderates. They're just like vulnerable. The skittish. <laughs> yeah, just you refer know to them I mean? as the skittish. Like yeah. they're hardly like you I mean, know. Some of them are. Charlie Dent is a legit sure. moderate. That's I mean, fair. You know, if you look at, at Mark Kirk, who was a former senator who had headed the Tuesday group as yeah, a real moderate. That's a real moderate. Uh, but some or, of these or, guys are not Yeah, some, some of these, I mean, like... They're just vulnerable. Daryl Issa ain't no moderate. Right, Daryl right. Issa is Chris, all of a sudden in a Chris swing Smith district. from New Jersey is not right, a moderate right, on right, many right, issues right. besides this one. Right. 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 They're just the, vulnerable. Yeah, they're moderating. They're moderating <laughs> their <laughs> tone. They're not moderate, they're moderating. Yeah, um, they're running for the hills is what they're doing. And... The thing is, their best case scenario right now to me is they somehow, after all of this pain and all of this attention and all this nastiness, manage to get to a vote, manage to get it over to the Senate. What happens then? It dies. Like, not half dead. It is dead in the Senate. Um, Right. You, there's been so many senators, Republican senators, who've come out and said, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this. And there like are significant problems. Yeah. yeah. Medicaid expansion alone, I mean, there's probably eight votes that, or eight senators who will never, ever vote to undo the Medicaid expansion. Yeah. I mean, Ohio, Rob Portman has been very out front. Mm-hmm. West Virginia, Shelley Moore Capito. Um, you could go through a whole list. And there's yeah, when you're losing plenty. a Republican from West Virginia on any major legislation, I mean, and I think that's interesting. You look at you know, so many Republicans were on the Ryan Medicare gutting plan. Mm. The one who wasn't back in the day was David McKinley. Mm. Uh, and, and Andy Surrey is, is his advisor, is a very smart Republican advisor. It's like, you don't screw with program, <laughs> public programs for poor white people who need them. Like, that's the only way to alienate these people from the Republican Party it seems right now. It's obvious politics. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't take away things that people actually benefit from in their districts, especially if the only upside of that is tax cuts for wealthy people and handouts to insurance companies, which, you know, I, I think there's a lot of problems with Obamacare. What positives do you think? You know, assuming we actually saw Trump Care, Ryan Care, whatever you want to call us, become law, who would this help? This Republican bill? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you had a Democratic operative in here, it'd be rich people. Um, you know, certainly. Yeah, but I mean, like, I, you know, I'm a here. fairly nonpartisan reporter. I know Bill Press show, but like, I'm not like some. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But like, I'm like, going That's through what this I do. bill. I'm here <laughs> to but, but like, you know, I mean, it's a, a serious question. Like, who would benefit? Would this drive costs down? Would this create more access for people? It would certainly help younger people Mm -hmm. and people who are relatively healthy. Um, I mean, certainly premiums went up under the ACA because insurance policies had to cover everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they got rid of these so-called mini-med plans, catastrophic plans. You know, if you're 28 years old and you're pretty healthy, you don't need everything that the Affordable Care Act provides. You really just need insurance to, when you get strep throat, and if you were to, you know, get hit by a bus or get cancer or something yeah. like that. So for that person, their premiums would definitely go on, go down because insurers would be able to sell these basic plans again. Um, and there's some there's some value in that. I mean, mm-hmm. 28-year-olds didn't sign up for the Affordable Care Act because the plans were insanely expensive. Right. And they didn't see the value in it. Yeah. Um, and there is value to getting those people insured, even if it isn't with a plan that covers everything under the sun. Um, it would mostly hurt people who are 55 to 65-ish. 
because yeah. under the ACA, insurers couldn't charge those folks significantly more than younger people. And under the Republican plan, states could opt out of that um, ratio. And we would probably see older people charged more. Um, essentially, if you maintain coverage, if you are covered by an insurer or you have insurance under the Affordable Care Act and you keep it, you'd be pretty much fine because you'd be in the system. The issue is once you get out of the system, it would be very hard to get back in. Yeah. Um, insurers would be able to charge you more and they'd be able to underwrite you, meaning they'd be able to look at your medical history and see, you know, do you have a super high risk of cancer? Do you use the healthcare system a lot? And if you do, the insurer could charge you more. Yeah. Um, so there is definitely some folks who would benefit from this and some folks who would be hurt. Yeah, and, and there's this great irony of Obamacare that I was wor working for Ron Brownstein at the National Journal at the time when we did a bunch of work on this, of how Obamacare was actually most going to benefit Republicans and rural voters and mm -hmm. most screw over the Obama coalition, especially millennial voters, because it drove up younger healthcare insurance in a big way. It basically made young people pay for old people's healthcare. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what it does it is. Absolutely. And and so, you know, yet another way that millennials get screwed in the modern economy. But the irony of this, Donald Trump who ran as this great populist backing this bill that we talked about how screwed you are if you ha if you don't have continuous coverage, which is more likely if you're poor, if it's more likely if mm -hmm. if you're uh in an industrial job. Uh, it's more expensive for older people until you until you the magic age where you hit Medicare and you stop mm -hmm. having to worry about this. Also, how does this affect rural state hospitals? Oh, rural state hospitals are flipping out right now. Um, I mean, basically everyone in the healthcare system is flipping out right now because of all this uncertainty. Um, but providers in rural areas are very worried. Um, you know, Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act was amazingly successful. Um, it, people enrolled at a rate much higher than CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, expected. Um, and a lot of that is rural populations. And in fact, a lot of it is Trump voters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, K Kentucky had one of the most successful programs in the country. You see Tom And even Cotton, their Medicaid was higher than the exchange population. Right. Uh, you know, Arkansas had this kind of weird agreement where they, they got a waiver to do their own type of program rather than pure Medicaid expansion. But, you know, interestingly... Uh, Tom Cotton, who's about as far right as you get, uh, railed against Obamacare, frankly, won largely uh, his election on Obamacare. One of his senior advisors and staffers was the guy who designed the Arkansas program, mm -hmm. uh, which I wrote about at the time. And now Tom Cotton is getting screamed at in town halls. Uh, you know, a woman who's saying, this is I, I am alive because of Obamacare. I have health coverage for my cancer because of Obamacare. You're going to take that away if you got this. These are the places that are going to get most damaged by this plan. And there are always winners and losers, whatever you do. I'm not giving a moral judgment about whether Obamacare was a good thing, because I think there's obviously some severe flaws in it, uh, or that this would be a total negative. But for the people in the areas that swung towards Trump, those are the areas that are the biggest losers under this plan. And I don't understand between this and the tax plan that they rolled out, and I know that you're a healthcare person, um, who they think this is benefiting and why they've gotten so far away from what I think is an important and effective populism that could have been built into a more lasting coalition. 
Um, well, to your point on Tom Cotton, he's come out and said that he wouldn't undo the Medicaid expansion. Right. Tom and he, Cotton. Exactly. <laughs> Even pro, the liberal Tom Cotton. Right. Pro, <laughs> the biggest part of Obamacare, arguably. Yeah. So, I mean, to That's that. That's wild. And I think that, that proves yeah. that the town halls are having an effect. Um, but to your point on Trump voters, there's this amazing disconnect when you look at the polls on the Affordable Care Act. People hate Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And they don't associate it with the coverage they have, Yeah. Um, whether it's Medicaid or the exchanges. The idea of Obamacare just elicits this visceral negative reaction. It's anti-Obama. It's anti-government mm-hmm. in you know, your personal business. It's yeah. government overreach. People still are angry about the way it was passed. Which is kind of interesting now that Republicans are doing almost the exact same thing. But there's yeah, just... if, you, if you have the Democrats in 17 months and right. actually holding committee hearings and having open amendment process were bad. I, I mean, the Republicans try to. I mean, Paul, Paul Ryan of this open I mean, the hypocrisy of what he promised to be as speaker versus what he's actually doing is pretty striking. But yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off on that point. I, I mean, no, I no, just no, I don't see okay. how. They, I mean, even if they get this done, and this just shows that it's so much easier to rail against things, to rage against the machine. When you start having your voters yelling about, get your government hands off my Obamacare, it changes things pretty dramatically from where we were uh, even six months ago. It's all of a sudden solutions get a little tricky. For sure. I just, I, just to park on, because Paul Ryan's name came up for me, I just want to park on Paul Ryan for just a second, right? Because I think that uh, he's been completely exposed as this, you know, everyone calls him this policy wonk mm-hmm. and this great and brilliant policy mind, which I think has been exposed as total BS through this whole thing, right? Like, I don't think he would have let his party get to this point if he was such a chess master, as people like to to make it sound like. But, like... As much grief as Trump is getting for the healthcare debacle, which, to be clear, it is a debacle, um, I, I think most of this falls at the feet of Paul Ryan. I really do. Like, scheduling this arbitrary date yeah. to, for a vote, not having a clear plan when they had a political lifetime mm-hmm. to get it together, yeah. that's not Trump. That's Paul Ryan. And yeah. so I know a lot of thinking conservatives or moderates or whatever, look at Paul Ryan as the real face of the Republican the Party. Way hope, yeah. Yeah, as the guy who's going to save them after this weird thing with Trump. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think so. No, you know the smart leader is? Mitch McConnell is the one yeah. who, who is a, a savant. Mitch McConnell's brilliant. And, and did you notice yeah. that when he was asked right before the last recess, um, you know, how do you feel about the House not doing health care? And he's like, oh, you know, if <laughs> they, if they pass smile. it... Um, we'll deal with it. And I was like, this is the guy root and branch. Mm. He was going to repeal Obamacare root and branch. And now he's just kind of like, oh, um, we, they didn't do M- it. remember him coming out on stage with the entire Obamacare bill being yeah, carted yeah. out with him, like yelling about it. Right. Yeah. And the most interesting thing about the McConnell thing is Trump doesn't see McConnell coming. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this Tom Cotton he's stuff that stealthy. you just talked about. Like Tom Cotton would not have gone out there and said that unless Mitch McConnell knew that was coming. And McConnell was okay with it. But Trump doesn't know that. He doesn't see that coming. And so I, I mentioned this earlier. McConnell sees around corners. Oh, yeah. Donald Trump doesn't see anything until it's right up no, on I, his I, nose. I honestly think in either party, Mitch McConnell might be the most brilliant tactical fair. politician fair. in the city. Uh, rolls a lot of people. Uh, and he's rolling Trump on a lot of this. I mean, I, I think the government shutdown debate... There isn't going to be money for the wall. Mm-hmm. 
their because McConnell knows that's horrible politics for his members, mm-hmm. right? Politics and policy. I mean, the you know, the, my one of my favorite moments of, of the whole early administration was Congressman Will Hurd of Texas, who represents like about half of the Mexico border, like just showing John Kelly, all you know, DHS had <laughs> all the pictures of what the actual where they would actually have to pry and put this wall, and it's like, oh, in a gorge with a river, <laughs> oh, like this this wouldn't actually like there's just like physically nowhere you put a wall, like you're putting a, like putting a wall in this gorge would just basically filling in the gorge, like it was <laughs> it was so silly. So, um, yeah, M- M- Mitch McConnell, I think, is is the tempering influence that is controlling that, that is keeping a check on on some of the wilder impulses um but the you know in the house the freedom caucus ain't like that and mm-hmm. and these tuesday group members i think it's you know republicans have close to the largest majority they've ever had you know it's not quite as big as after 2014 um there are a lot of these districts that trump won but one by three or one by five the heat on these republicans has been dramatic and i think you're seeing i'm curious overall what do you sense in their change of tone in going home how much do you think this recess impacted what they sound like oh i think the recesses are having a huge impact i think the town halls are having a big impact i mean think back in january when lawmakers first came back they were saying that they were going to do immediate repeal and then replace later yeah and that seems funny now because it was so long ago and it's so different than what they're saying now but that flipped very very quickly once people started coming out and saying i want my pre-existing conditions you can't take away my health care. And it, it, it was almost like the the politics caught up to their policy. And um, Republicans were realizing we were actually taking away a benefit. I mean, there is there is a reason that this country has never repealed a social benefit of this size, ever. It, yeah. It's very hard to do. Medicare you know, was extremely controversial when it passed. And now yeah. there's those Socialism. signs, government off my uh, Medicare. And... Um, so we saw that, and then these past recesses, I think it's been even more. I mean, I went to, I went to two town halls with Chuck Grassley, um, and everybody was pre-existing conditions. Everybody was talking about that. I mean, they were talking about lots of – they were kind of venting their frustration with everything Trump is doing, but pre-existing conditions was a huge part of it. And I've, I've listened to a bunch of other town halls. You mentioned Tom Cotton. That, I, think that, I think those town halls might have really affected him. Also the Medicaid expansion, but I think – I think the realization that as much as Obamacare is controversial, it did kind of set the bar that you have to do pre-existing conditions. And yeah. Republicans don't have an answer for how you respond to the ACA's pre-existing conditions. So absolutely having an effect. Yeah, it's hard to be something with nothing. Um, do you see – I think this bill is dead. I think that depending on – or I think this bill is zombified. I think yeah. I, it's hard to see it going away. If this bill fails again – is there a way to actually have a bipartisan way to fix Obamacare anytime soon? Or are people so locked in that we're basically looking at essentially no changes to the current law? I don't think it happens now. Um, I mean, you talk to Democrats and they, they're they like, oh, yeah, we admit that the Affordable Care Act has some mistakes and we'll, we're willing to fix them. And it's like, well, what would you do? And they're like, oh, more money for subsidies which is like the super liberal <laughs> response. Yeah. And then you have Republicans who want to repeal. Yeah. Um, I don't see that middle ground, you know, totally shifting anytime soon. I could see some changes. I mean, I do think Republicans need to do something before the 2018 election to prove to their voters that, like, you gave us full control of Washington. 
we were able to do the one thing that we've promised for eight years that we would. <laughs> so I could see some kind of bill being like repealing the individual mandate, which really wouldn't be that problematic because it's not strong enough right now. Oh, they can't do that under reconciliation, can they? I mean, in the Senate. No, they could. They, well, under reconciliation, they just changed the fine to zero. Right. Um, you could do that. Um, you could do that, get rid of, I mean, even the employer mandate isn't really having an effect. Um, there's pieces Democrats don't like. They don't like the IPAB, the Independent Payment Advisory Board that is supposed to control Medicare spending later. Mm-hmm. I could almost see, like if Republicans were really smart, if they wanted to really put Democrats in a corner, they put up a bill that does something like that and tell Heidi Heidkamp, Joe Manchin, Claire McCaskill, all those Democrats who are up in 2018, I dare you to vote against repealing yeah. the individual mandate for real. And I don't think Freedom Caucus would go along with that. I think they would block it because it's not conservative enough. I think that would put those Democrats in the Senate in a tough spot. Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to watch because I think right now they actually have some Democrats they can exert pressure over because there's these 10 Democrats in states Trump won, including exactly. six from very conservative states uh, that they could pressure. After the 2018 elections, I don't know how they come back to this because those guys are going to be through their re-election. All of a sudden, we're looking at uh, Trump re-election. So it's going to be interesting. But Well, if they don't have majority in the House anymore, it changes things. <laughs> yes, that, that is very true. Uh, Cameron Joseph with the New York Daily News on here with Jennifer Haber-Korn. It was a pleasure. Great talking to you. Great this to talk with Bill you. This is the Bill Press Show, and uh, he'll be back on Monday. Great. This is the Bill Press Show. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.